Father, thank you for this time in the Word. We're so glad to gather. Thank you that um, we live not only in America, but we live in Florida. Uh, that's a blessing, Lord, to be able to be assembled together all the way since last June. We have been together serving each other and preaching and, and Lord, slowly but surely return many of the saints. And um, we're so grateful, Lord, and we thank you that uh, you've protected our church in many ways. You've helped us uh, through these difficult times, and, and Lord, we've really thrived because of you. And Lord, we pray that this ministry will continue to thrive, both in uh, its proclamation ministry, but also its, its one another ministry. That, Lord, we want that to thrive. That's the outcome. That's the result of the word ministry. And, and Lord, we thank you for children's ministries that are doing so well, and uh, safe and secure down there, but yet being taught the precious truths of the scriptures. Our school continues to blossom as well, Lord, and um, both our academy and the seminary as well, Lord. And we just want to thank you for these things. And, and though there are trials and testings and difficulties we've been through this year, you have been faithful. And because you're faithful, Lord, we follow you, and it helps us by your word be faithful as well. So we give you praise for that, Lord. Now be with us as we look into your word tonight. May we magnify your son and just realize the great blessing we have of minds and hearts opened to the truth. Lord, may we be those who proclaim that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm in between Exodus and Leviticus, and I'm not going to do Leviticus tonight. I'm not quite ready for it. Um, uh, but I got thinking I want to do a little bit of a transition, um, and I want you to turn your Bibles to John 6 tonight. Um, and when I get to Leviticus, hopefully next week I'll start in that. Uh, I'll do a little more of a jet trip through Leviticus. There's some chapters that kind of bulk up that we can look at. Um, many a person reading through their Bible has died in Leviticus. <laughs> and we're not, right? We're going to get through Leviticus. And there's some beautiful things in there. We want to see that. We want to see the glory of God there and how things are, are progressing forward towards the cross. We'll look at that and look forward to um, dissecting some of those passages for you and helping you. But what came to mind was as I finished Exodus, there's just so many things there that are now in place. They, they have the law now. They have a tabernacle built and the Shekinah glory has filled it. They have a priesthood that is being dedicated and consecrated um, towards the service of God. And and, and everything they need for the presence of God to dwell with them, albeit limited way, is there and you really question, though, if we read our Bibles, we know, what will they do with all of this? Will they follow God? Will they serve Him? Or will they serve another? Or will they follow? Will they serve another? It's a good question, and we know as we study the book of, of, the, book of the law, the Pentateuch, and then on into the kings and, and so forth, the history of the nation, we realize that so many fall away. Well, there's a parallel passage to that and really shows the heart of the nation, and we find it in John chapter 6. Jesus is now wrapping up his discourse on the bread of life. John is recording this, and, and he's really showing as Jesus' ministry is coming to an end in Galilee, and he's moving towards Judea. He has been there for several years, most likely. He has done so much work. And yet, you'll see today that after all the miracles, all the feeling, feeding of them, all that he does, 
the majority of them fall away over a statement. And this has been common to man. Left on his own, he will not follow. So Jesus makes a decisive move here after John 6, and he makes his way towards Judea. He is on his way to the cross, and there he will die alone. Tonight's passage is of tremendous importance. It's, it's John's gospel sharing and telling us that Jesus Christ has made claims to who he is. He's, he's not some cheap imitation of a Messiah. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament. John's making no doubt about that. John chapter 5, probably one of the most profound, deepest passages of scriptures when you look at the deity of Christ. And in Christ's explanation of himself all through 5 and particularly 6 helps us understand that there is no hidden message here. He lays claims. He lays claim to his deity. And they are either going to follow him or they're going to turn from him. At first, the people tend to just flock to him, right? They, they press on him. They, they desire the miracles. They want their bellies full. But beginning in John chapter 6, he chooses to withdraw with, from them. The beginning of the chapter, he moves away, but they search him out, right? They discover him, and, and there he, he finds all these thousands that have followed him out to the wilderness where he had withdrawn, and, and he has compassion still on them, even though he knows their hearts. And he feeds them with physical bread, and he does this not only because he's compassionate, but he wants to show who the true bread of life is. He wants to show the difference of the man in the wilderness and a living bread that will give you eternal life. And he set on doing this. Instead of receiving him as a savior, we will see that the crowds decide they want to make him king now. Forget the savior part. We don't need a savior. We need a king. And early on in 6, they try to make him go to Jerusalem. They want Jesus to crush his enemies and fill their bellies. And the people begin to, to move. But as he doesn't go and doesn't do what they want, they begin to reject him. And then as he speaks further about what they need to do with him, believe him, consume him, pretty soon they reject him. And most of the Galilean followers will all turn their back on Jesus Christ. It's really the ultimate test of the twelve as well. What will you do with me, Jesus is going to ask them. Well, there's such comparisons there between Israel of the Old Testament and then Israel here in the New Testament. They had everything they needed to know God and to have the right direction that they could go forward to trust God by faith. And yet, even though God gives Israel everything, he even dwells among them in a tabernacle that was a mirror, a human mirror image of, an, of a heavenly tabernacle, they could not stay with God. And this parallels us as well. They, in the end, reject Jesus and turn to their own idols, the idol of self. And so we want to look at this passage and say, what do we do with Jesus? Will we continue on? Is he enough for us? Will we find satisfaction in Christ? Or do you look for another? Something else. So this evening, I just want to examine this passage, and while we do this, examine our own hearts to see what kind of followers we are. What kind of bread do you want? Do you want bread that you need more tomorrow of? That's what the rat race of the world's about. 
Or do you want the bread of Christ that will satisfy you forever? About this time, Jesus said in Luke 9, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. He's starting to really set his disciples to understand that there's more to this life than being on my left hand and right hand, even though they don't get it. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and daily, daily follow me. It's a lifestyle, isn't it? It's a whole life of following the Lord Jesus Christ. And he grants us the grace and faith to do this, but it is a daily cross that we follow. If you wish to save your own life, you're going to lose it, he says. But if you're willing to lay your life down, you will find it. For what profits a man if he gains a whole world and loses and, and then forfeits it in the end? What profit is that? And then he makes a statement that just shocks you every time you read it. This is Luke 9, 26. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Isn't that interesting how he connects that? A lot of people love Jesus. They just don't love his words. They don't love the word of God. Whoever is ashamed of me and my word, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when, it comes, when he comes into his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Is Jesus enough? Well, let me look at three thoughts tonight um, as we break down this passage. I want to start in verse 52 and work our way to the end, Lord willing. Number one, we must be satisfied in Jesus alone to receive eternal life or settle for manna and death. You either have to be satisfied in Jesus alone to receive eternal life, everlasting life, or get manna and die. Which one do you want? Look at verse 51. I really want to start at 52, but 51 gives us some context. He's repeating something he said earlier, but now he puts more detail. He says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Everybody with me? Verse 51, chapter 6 of John. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now this is a great contrast, wasn't it? The Israelites knew. They actually had festivals that reminded them of the great bread that fell out of heaven, manna. But that manna they had to eat over and over and over. In fact, in their disbelief, they got an extra 40 years of it. Because they wandered around the wilderness because they didn't believe what God had said. But Jesus is offering something so much greater. So much better than the manna that fell from heaven. As, most, as miraculous as that was, he is saying, I am the living bread. And in a sense, the manna was a dead bread, right? In fact, you couldn't even keep it overnight. If you tried to keep it overnight, it failed you badly. <laughs> Worms and stunk, the Bible says. But not Jesus, <laughs> He's a living word. He, he doesn't fail you, and he's all you need. And, and so here, Jesus has now revealed the true nature of his first coming. It's self-sacrifice. I'm going to do something for you, and you will consume me. You will believe in me. You'll take me into your most inner parts, and you will have eternal life. However, he chooses his divine words very carefully in this passage, doesn't he? And he's, I, I think he is doing this to separate false disciples from true disciples. You give up everything. You consume me. And let go of the human, the, the dead man of things that you chase. And you consume me. You will have eternal life. 
He's going to show who has true faith and who doesn't. Look at verse 52 with me. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, this argument, just if you look at the argument, it implies that there were some who were strongly supportive of Jesus, and there are some who weren't, right? Because there's an argument that breaks out. If, if everybody doesn't believe, then there's not much of an argument, right? Everybody just leaves. There's some kind of argument. So there's somebody there, be, be it the disciples, um, Mary and Lazarus, or whoever was around that group um, that stayed with Jesus through time. Somebody was standing up for the truth there. And so there's an argument that breaks out here. And the argument shows that they did not understand how it was possible for Jesus to give them, give them his flesh. And this was not the first time the Jews didn't understand Jesus' statement, right? John chapter 2, I'm going to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. They actually bring that to his trial. They never did understand that he was speaking about his body, right? And we'll see later, he brings the Spirit and the God uh, into this equation and why we understand those things. Look at verse 53 with me. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Well, we haven't, I haven't taught this whole passage, but this is the fourth time he says, truly, truly, or I tell you the truth. It's the fourth time he's done in this passage. He is really preaching. He is really trying to show what he's, what he's completely about. And these truly, truly's, they set up a very deliberate and an important saying that will be a dividing line. And notice that in this statement, he adds drinking of his blood. You've got to eat me and you've got to drink my blood. Well, this had to be just completely uh, a curveball thrown at them, right? I mean, drinking blood was forbidden in the Mosaic uh, law. Leviticus chapter 17 is very clear on this. You, you can't drink the blood of anything because the life, life is in the blood. They're missing where life is going to come from. Verse 14 of chapter 17 is, for as, as, for as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. And then he warns them not to eat of the blood of the flesh of anything. They'll be cut off. But, but the words here, eat and drink, uh, appearing in the original text in the, in the Greek tense denote uh, a once and for all action, right? That's, that's the idea. It's really important, right? Because there are certain religions that you just keep getting it and you keep taking it and you keep getting Jesus. This is a once and for all type of statement. He says, you have to consume me if you want life. See, you hear me use terms and you hear other preachers, treasure. For me, I love the word captured by Christ. Are you captured by Christ? Has he captured your heart, your soul, your mind? And though you may have struggles like myself from time to time, you're captured with Jesus and it doesn't take you long. It's not hard to get back to him because he owns you and he's given you life. However, eating and drinking are absolutely necessary for eternal life. If you don't take Christ in, there is no eternal life, right? So this eating and drinking Jesus was very graphic, to say the least, wasn't it? And it's a saying that i, I got to take him into every aspect of me. We see other things. You go, well, it's just, boy, why did he have to say that? Well, Paul says if the Spirit of God is not you know, completely consumed with you, he talks about, he compares it to drunkenness, right? 
that drunkenness and alcohol can get in all your blood. You can find it in your pinky, your head, your toe. I mean, that's how you know you can take it out anywhere and see a person is drunk. And he says, this is how the Spirit of God should be in you. You should be filled with the Spirit of God. And we don't jump at that one. It's the same idea. He, he, he now comes in and invades us in every aspect of our life. So he's not just a Sunday Jesus, is he? He's not just a Jesus when you're in trouble. He's your Lord. Master, Kyrios is the word. He's, he's my ruler. He's my master. He's the one I willingly put the all in my ear. I am eternal servant, eternal slave of you, Lord Jesus. And this is not what they were after. These words are, are then our instruction about the atoning work of Christ. They have to be. Otherwise, if you take them in any other way, you will be doing something in order to inherit the kingdom of God by something you consume physically. So these are speaking of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And it's a challenge to enter in the closest and most intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a challenge to you. Have I consumed him? Yeah, man, look at the church today. Man, Jesus is like, hey, just let's put him in the back pocket and then let's do church the way we want to do it. He either is the head of the church or he's not at the church. One of the two. He either is the central theme of all that we do, the head of everything we do, or he isn't here. That's Jesus. And that's us for each and, one, each and every one of us. Look at verse 47. This kind of ties back to this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So this is talking about faith. This is talking about belief, trust in God. This is what the nation's going to struggle with, right? They're going to get everything. They're going to get the houses. And they're going to get the farms. They're going to get the cities already done for them. And they're going to come in there. And instead of staying with God, what they'll do is go, well, we had a few problems. Let's go look at what Dagon is doing with the Philistines because their crops seem to be growing. And they turn away from the Lord. And they intermarry. And they get unequally yoked. And all kinds of problems start to happen. And God does not look very appealing to them. But notice the last statement in verse 53, drop back down there. I love this little phrase. You have no life in yourself. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what Paul says, right? Ephesians, you're dead in your sins. You have no life in yourself. You need me. You need my blood because in my blood is life. In yourself, you have no life. What a statement of depravity, isn't that? People say, well, Jesus doesn't talk about depravity. I don't know what you do with that verse. <laughs> you have no life. You're a dead man walking. I'm your only hope. And remember, again, Leviticus 17, 11 said, in the, in, in the flesh is life, and the life of the flesh is the blood. So Jesus is saying, my blood will give you life. He's pointing towards the cross. This, the whole Bible has been pointing towards the cross. Jesus is still pointing to the cross, and they still don't get it. They still don't get it. And if you don't have my cleansing blood, Jesus is saying, you'll die just like your forefathers, wandering around in the desert of self. Loop after loop after loop till you drop dead. You'll be religious. Oh, you'll be packing a tabernacle with you. You'll have a bunch of do's and don'ts, but you'll die in the desert. 
And see, this is the difference between those who truly have consumed the Lord Jesus by his grace and mercy in our life, consumed him, to those who just want him along for the ride in case I need him. Where are you at on that? Look at verse 54 with me. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's not giving up here, is he? These are extreme terms, right? After the negative statement of death, Jesus follows it with a positive. He says, look, if you eat me and drink me, I'll raise you up on the last day. Oh, we're already struggling with resurrection. He says, look, I'm going to get raised from the dead, and I'm going to raise you up. So my life will give you life. Literally, I'll give you resurrected life. And look, they must have known this because when Jesus talks about raising Lazarus from the dead, she says, well, I know, I know, I believe the resurrection in the last day. I believe there'll be a resurrection. So this isn't national. I'll give you a resurrected body like mine. He's promising that if you consume me. In other words, I am the resurrection and the life, he's going to say in John 11. And this is... This is great news when you understand that the wages of sin is death, namely eternal death and eternal punishment, and God is offering you eternal life, a resurrected body like his. What a statement. Notice the word eat here. He, he actually changes the verb here from previous words. Uh, the previous word gave the idea of just consuming it. Well, now all of a sudden he changes the verb and the Greek, and he uses a word that means to gnaw on it, chew on it, um, and, it's, and it's not like gnawing on it like it's a bad piece of meat. This is a nice ribeye. <laughs> um, this is something you savor. It has the idea of an expression of in, uh, eating with enjoyment. You know when I'm diets, I tell Gene, I go, I just don't enjoy food that, when I'm dieting. <laughs> right? Boy, there's nothing like carving into a nice steak. Carve it into something that you just makes your mouth water. Jesus says, look, you gnaw on me. All this other stuff you've been chewing on has not satisfied you. I can satisfy your eternal hunger. The word he now uses means you'll never look for another when you taste me. This means that you are partaking of Christ in your mind and your heart now. It's, it's gone beyond some outward uh, desire that maybe you needed Jesus to get you out of a jam. This is now consuming your mind and your heart. The mind now has reached the heart and you know who he is. You find great delight in consuming Jesus. You want to sing about him. You want to hear him taught. You want to read yourself. You want to know him. You want to study him. You want knowledge of your Savior. See, this is receiving, this is believing, this is faith, this is following, this is trusting, this is eating and drinking and being captured by Jesus and enjoying him, even when it's difficult. See, the difficult times is when it really challenges us. Now, Sunday school is great, isn't it? Wednesday night, you know, preaching and singing and is great. And then there's tomorrow morning. And the bills have to be paid. And the marriage isn't where it should be. And there's challenges with children. Where's Christ? Are you leaning on him as he captured you? In the end, not only will he satisfy your soul, but he'll raise your body 
and you'll have complete victory. And you'll look back on this difficult world and you'll go, I would have never made it without you, Jesus. Verse 55, I've got to keep moving here. He says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. His opponents had altogether the wrong idea of what constituted true bread, right? They had seen Christ's signs before them. They had watched what he had done, raise the dead, heal the sick, feed them great amounts of food out of nothing. And they could, they could not see this true bread standing before them. Their souls did not find satisfaction in Jesus Christ like so many today who hear the gospel. And yet people continue minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day to try to attempt to satisfy their souls with all kinds of things, don't they? There's a lot of spiritual cheerleading that goes on in the church today, wind people up, and yet nothing satisfies it but Jesus and his word. He's the true food. He's the true drink. It's why we talk about him, sing about him, pray to him, as elders, we work hard to say, how is this church going to glorify God in this? How are we going to exalt Christ in this new idea that we have? We think about him in every way. We, we bow. We, we bow to him, to his lordship. We are in submission to him. Because there's just nothing else that will satisfy you. And when we think of what God wants us to do and how, where he wants to lead the church, we, he, we know he wants us to lead the church towards his son. Because there's just no satisfaction in anything else. Look at verse 56 with me. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Well, notice the stress between Jesus' atoning work and the cross and the believer here. There's fellowship. You're brought into this koinonia. We talked about this a little bit on Sunday, this eternal bond that can't be broken. Jesus says, Lord, I want them to be one like you and I are one. I want them to be brought into that type of fellowship here. And when you consume the Lord... He abides in you. The word is a minnow. It's a, it means he remains, he stays. It's an immovable part of our life now. Hayward said as he was leading us in worship, he says when the father looks at us, he sees the son. It's because he abides in us and we abide in him. There's fellowship there. There's uh, a beautiful relationship. So there is a close relationship to the one who eats and the one who's being consumed, right? That, that just gets closer and closer and, and we just continue to consume him because we know him and we love him. It reminds us that the believer enters into not some temporary relationship that could or could not make it or it could fail. <laughs> we enter into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. So I ask you this question before the next point. Are you satisfied in Christ or are you chasing some other manna? What will you do with him? Second thought, the life-giving work of the Godhead and the deadness of unbelief. Look at verse 57 with me. He says, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. They're both living. He's, there's just statements of equality here all through this. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. Now this verse tells us that the son's shared life with the father means that he coexists in equality with the father. So if the Lord whom we've consumed coexists with the father, what is our relationship with the father? Coexisting. 
In fact, positionally, we sit at the right hand of the Father with the Son. So it means we can't be separated from Him. And, and that's, that's what this type of Christianity is teaching here. Not, not one that bails and runs when di- things get difficult, but knowing that you're secure in Christ. You're cons- and, and I'd go a step further. You're cons- you are secure in the Godhead. Peter says he's, God has given us this divine relationship with him, meaning he's put a spirit within us. We have unity with the Son, and where the Son is, the Father is, and, and so forth. And we just see this incredible relationship with the triune God. And so everything we're hearing here as we go through this, he's, he's setting up the difference between a man-centered faith or a man-centered religion and a Christ-centered belief. And when a person is just consumed with Christ, he or she knows that eternal life comes with Jesus. And there's no turning back. Look at verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. <laughs> what a comparison, right? He's just making a clear comparison here. The results of man-centered religion. Death. The results of Christ-centered Christianity, life. What are you chasing? See, the Son has life. The Father has life. And we have life in the Son because the Father gave us to the Son, right? And the Son has life. In Him was life, John said. And so He gives us life, and so we don't pursue dead things. And yet religion is so shiny at times, right? Right? Keep this and do that, and you'll be a little better than the other person. Now you find yourself dead in a desert. Jesus Christ gives us life. He's a love gift from the Father to us, and we are a love gift to his Son. Look at verse 59. These things, I, uh, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. I thought that was fascinating. <laughs> and so verse 59 tells us that Jesus is saying all these things in the synagogue, and the synagogue was the center of Jewish religion, and it was the way to heaven. Because in John chapter 9, when the blind man keeps telling him, you want to know what happened to me, that guy did it. <laughs> and they get ticked off at him, and they're saying, look, we're going to put you out of the synagogue. And you know what they're saying? There's no way to heaven if we put you out of the synagogue. Because we are the way to heaven, the synagogue. And guess where Jesus is teaching all of this? In the synagogue. All this stuff that you're doing. Standing up and, oh man, God, I thank you I'm not like that guy. Oh, look at all the money I've put in. Look, all that outward religion was manna and going to lead to death. And Jesus, right in the middle of their works-based religion, was saying, look, I'm the only way to heaven. I think that's so fascinating. He could have done that out on the street and it's still been beautiful, right? But in his sovereign choice, he finds himself in the synagogue, the heart of their religion is completely contrary to a religious system, isn't it? Look at verse 60 with me. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? So it reflects just an obstinate attitude. The Old Testament uses the word stiff-necked, right? It's a ranching term. The oxen pull, lock their necks with strong muscles, and they just pull the way they want to go. It's obstinate. 
of these so-called disciples here, the, the word is used here in general, right? The Greek literally says this is a hard saying. Who is able to hear it? Again, it's clear they, they understood what Jesus is saying, right? They, weren't, they, they knew language. They weren't illiterate. They understood it. They just didn't like it, right? See, this is why Peter, who's standing there, who probably didn't understand it all either, but God had granted him faith, and he's going to say, hey, where else are we going to go here in a minute? We're going to see that. But later he writes, taking Old Testament text, and says, well, Christ was the rock of offense, and this was, a, this was offensive, what he was saying to them. And they stumbled over him to whom they were appointed, doomed to whom they were appointed. He is a rock of offense. You've got to consume me. You're kidding me. You know who we are? Our, our father is Abraham. <laughs> Jesus says, I can make stones out of, into the kids of Abraham. See, there's just no faith, right? And so Jesus becomes this rock of offense to them. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples, grumbling at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Now, Jesus' choice of words here indicate that he knew exactly that he had offended them. <laughs> he wasn't hiding it. I know you're offended. John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, he says he would not commit himself to them because he knew the hearts of all men. He knows who's offended in that crowd. He knows who's offended in this crowd. <laughs> he knows people who are offended by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the truth of him. As followers of Jesus, how to respond to this omniscient statement? The Hebrews tells us, look, that the word of God cuts to the core, Right? even to the point where it knows the intentions of the thought of our heart. Christ and his word cannot be separated. Look at verse 62, the offense heightens here. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? <laughs> well, this just is just too much. In fact, as they put him through his trial and we see that in Mark chapter 14. There they have him in front of the trial and the high priest is there and they're questioning him. And he won't speak for quite some time, but eventually Christ speaks and he says, they said, are you the Christ, the son, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, yeah, I am. And here's the deal. And you shall see the son of the man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. The Bible says they tore their clothes. The, the real heart came out of them uh, the, the issues of their heart just flowed out of them as they rushed at him with anger. They did the exact same thing to Stephen in Acts chapter 7 because as he's dying, guess what he sees? Christ at the right hand of the Father, the last thing they heard Jesus say to him. What a statement. Look, we preach the Bible because it is so contrary to the world thinking and it separates Christians from non-Christians. It just does. Now, we're not, um, if you're not a saved in here, I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to offend you. I want you to believe in Jesus Christ. But we preach the word of God because we go, who's going to believe that if it isn't God who opens your heart? In today's world. You know, they, were, they persecuted the early church because they thought they were cannibals because of this passage. They just don't get it. They don't understand we're consumed with Jesus so I believe Jesus' statement about his ascension 
was a statement that would cause the final division here. Look at verse 63. This brings a lot of light to what's going on here. He said, it is the Spirit who gives life. He's already said the Son gives life and the Father gives life. He's already, now he's brought the Spirit into this, right? And the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit, are spirit and life. So, so now Jesus introduces the third member of the Trinity. And with him, he contrasts the inability of the flesh to save. The flesh can't save. The flesh leads to death. The spirit leads to life. The Spirit is the salvation giver, right? And, and of course, exactly what Jesus had told Nicodemus on that night he snuck in to see Jesus. He said, look, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here's a guy who thinks he's already got a foot in the kingdom of God. It's just how close I'm going to be to the throne, right? What? And he, he can't imagine what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, look, flesh is flesh. Flesh breeds forth death. Spirit brings forth spirit. Life and death are clear. You want to come by your works, you're going to die. You want to come by the Spirit of God, you'll have life. And by the way, we don't know where the Spirit is because it blows around like the wind. (laughs) I mean, it's an incredible sovereign statement. So the Spirit grants life to the finished work of Christ. and, And man, left in his flesh, cannot understand the things of the Spirit. And so people read this and they go, Scott, this just wasn't fair. <laughs> they just couldn't understand. I don't think the disciples actually understood it completely. I don't think it was till Pentecost when the Spirit of God comes in, they go, oh, that's what he was talking about. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and they're consumed with Christ, right? Because they, they're standing in front of the killers of Christ in Acts 4. They have no fear. They bring him out of the jail in Acts 5 and say, look, stop preaching. Well, you know, here's the way it's going to be. <laughs> we're going to obey you as best we can, but we're going to obey God over men. So, see ya. We're headed out preaching again. <laughs> they just had, they had no fear. See, the Spirit just strengthened them so greatly. And, and, and so he brings this third member of the Trinity in to say, this is where life is going to come. And you can see the difference of true believers. They believe in, and look, Let's be honest, man. Some of us have difficult days. We've had a difficult day today. We're maybe struggling with something. Maybe your marriage or your parenting or or your job or whatever it is. And you're struggling to walk with the Lord right now. But if you're truly saved, the Spirit will lead you to truth. You'll be led to repentance. You'll turn from your sin. And you'll walk with God again. That's what Christians do. And, And it may, we may have some consequences from some things. But yet we have joy even in those consequences. Man left in his flesh dies. The Spirit of God brings life, doesn't he? And I know, again, I know Jesus' statement is hard to grasp, but it's so important to understand that um, later Paul picks up on the same identity. He says, look, the natural man, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, towards the end of there, uh, he says the natural man is unappraised, right? He doesn't see the value of, of this. The one who has the Spirit of God sees the value of it. And so I ask you, do you understand what Jesus is saying here? This passage, so many people have stumbled over for decades and centuries. Do you understand he's talking about, you got to consume me. This isn't a part-time relationship. This is not a dating relationship with me. This is a once and for all, all in with me. That's what he's saying, isn't he? 
So many people have taken this to speak of some kind of transcendental, transcendental, I uh, can't say that word, uh, meditation of some sort that you just continue to gain Jesus and hope you get enough by the end to limit some kind of judgment that you'll go through. That's just bad stuff. <laughs> so wrong. See, religion is devoid of the Spirit. It's devoid of the Spirit. And I tell people all the time, oh, I'm, hey, you're, you're religious. I, no, I'm not. I'm a follower of Christ. See, religion just denotes works, doesn't it, in some way. And I try to explain that to them. I, I guess I am religious in their way. I go to church and so forth. But religion is about works. I'm about Christ. I'm following my Savior. All through the understanding of His all-sufficient Word, I need nothing else but His Word. And it tells you, it just shows you clearly who's of the Spirit and who isn't. Look at verse 64. But there were some of you who do not believe. This is all what it comes down to right here now. It comes down to faith. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. You know, you think that's why he spoke so boldly. <laughs> he knew exactly who was going to follow him. And again, you got... You got men like Peter who are going to deny him vehemently. And yet he believes. So we're not talking about perfect followers, right? No, anybody perfect in here? You raise your hand. We got to talk afterwards. Come right down here. I mean, we are, we are perfect on our standing, but we have struggles, don't we? But there's still faith there. It gets you up in the morning, keeps you going, keeps you denying sin, fighting that battle, loving Christ in the, in the fight, in the race. Right? That's... That's because God granted you grace and faith. And so Jesus knew who it was. And he's clearly showing salvation to be received through him alone, by, by faith alone that he grants you. Believing and coming to Jesus are parallel truths, right? So he knows whose are his. He's separating his false disciples from his true ones. Look at verse 65. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. <laughs> Remember, the believers are a gift from God, right? You're a gift from God to Jesus Christ. We're, we are gifts, and, and we're given the gift of faith, and we're given to God, to, from God to the Son, and the Son says, I'll lose none of them. And I'll tell you what, you, how you know that is because you're satisfied in Jesus Christ. You are not trying to stack something else onto, onto the finished work of Jesus Christ. In fact, when somebody tries to stack it on, it's very offensive. <laughs> right, get that off there. I hold the finished work of Jesus Christ. I know I'm not perfect right now, but I'm perfect in my standing with Christ. I believe in what he did, and it'll get me through this life. It's enough. So Jesus is showing his... his Really, his dependence upon the Father's sovereignty. He's going to draw all people to myself. Look, I don't, I don't have to here separate you now, a sheep and goat. The Father knows who you are, and he's going to give you to me. And yes, one day I will separate sheep and goat, but he's going to give them. He's, he's, he knows whose are his, and I will trust him. And he will grant you faith. Well, third thought, there's a narrow gate in Christ's followers who come through it. There's a narrow gate, and then there's Christ's followers who come through it. Look at 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. This is exactly what happens to Israel. He gives them everything. 
He brings them into the promised land. A land given a title, flowing with milk and honey. He gives it all to them. He's there residing with them, but it's not enough. And eventually they depart, and here too we see disciples depart. Now clearly the term disciple has several meanings, doesn't it? The disciple is sim- in its simplest form just means a follower, right? So he's not talking about the 12, or even the, particularly the 11 here, but also there were followers that stayed with him. But it's just talking about in general these followers, right? Feed us, heal us, be our king, right? He's talking about them. These are the faithless disciples that could not take Jesus at his word, could not believe his teaching, were not granted that faith to believe in that. And the verse literally says that they, they turned their backs on him. I mean, literally, they said, oh, we're done. And they walked away. See, it's a revealing glimpse of the nature of Jesus' ministry, and it's a revealing glimpse of the nature of man left to himself. You can see the Son of God, and it's not enough. It's not enough. And they turn and walk away. Look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go? Do you want to go away also? Do you? Well, this is a dramatic moment, to say the least, isn't it? He's challenging the twelve. They were there, they heard the sermons, they saw the food that, that everybody got fed. They had seen the reaction of their Jewish neighbors and maybe even relatives. They had observed the defection of, of many of these so-called disciples. And now Jesus is turning to them. And in essence, he's saying, what are you going to do with me? <laughs> what are you going to do with me? See, Christ is a, a fragrant aroma, the Bible says, right? Second Corinthians as well to those who know him and love him. He's a sweet aroma, isn't he? We sing, we clap after a song that stirs our heart on the Lord Jesus Christ. We love preaching that exalts the Son and causes us to strengthen our, our love for him. To others, it's an aroma of death. And you can take two people and preach the same message to you and one, ah! And the other one falls on his or her knees. Isn't that amazing? To one, it's death. To the other, it's life. Is it life to you? Is Jesus life to you? Have you consumed him? Look at 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's no surprising that Peter is a spokesmanship, he, a spokesman of the group. He usually is. He's the same guy that when asked, who do you think, who do men say that we are? He says in Matthew 16, who I am. He says in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So clearly he's displaying what the 11 believe here, right? They've received this gift of faith. And, and Peter says, to whom will we go? Look, there's no one else to go. We've sold everything. And, and, and I love this. And I love it for several reasons. One, because they don't have the Spirit of God yet, and, and yet there is some kind of God-given faith. The Father has given them to, to the Son at some level. <laughs> and, I, and I don't know that we can fully get our mind around that pre-cross, pre-Spirit-indwelling 
relationship that they had, but it, it's unique in some way, and it's, it's salvific in some way. But Peter says, look, I, I, we, we've left all. To whom will we go? And I think Peter and the others have realized that the false and fleshly religious lives that left Jesus to follow some other way to satisfy their souls, he understood who that was, and though he was going to go on and make grave mistakes and fail, God was going to keep him. And I I find comfort in that. I don't think there's a Christian in this room that hasn't failed the Lord Jesus. If we're honest. Lack of trust in him, and maybe even times not standing up for him, and maybe even you've denied Jesus. He will not deny you. He is faithful. And so I, I, I revel in this a bit. Verse 69, the verbs are all perfect tense. You could read it this way. We have come to a place of faith and we will continue there. And we, and we have entered into knowledge and we will retain it. We will stay here is the idea. Peter stressing that faith and knowledge which unbeknownst to him, the Spirit has led him to say this great statement, look, you're the Holy One of God. The rest of them are going, oh, you can't be of God. In fact, this is why they put him to death, because he makes himself equal with God. They all can't believe it, but these men, these men, by the anointing of the Spirit, not the residing, because that's going to come later, gives them faith, and they believe, and they actually call him the Holy One of Israel. That's a term right out of the Old Testament that's speaking of the Messiah. And so they believe. You say, well, what makes the difference? Why did the 12 stay and the others depart? It's faith. And you say, well, what happened in the Old Testament? Well, there's a lot of people who had faith in the Old Testament. There's a whole chapter on them. It's called Hebrews what? 12. By faith, by faith, by faith. And they didn't even see the cross. They didn't see Christ. By faith, they believed. They believed God would deliver them. In some way, in some fashion, they knew there was someone who was going to come and deal with their sin and and get them to God. They understood that at some level. They believed by faith. And these disciples are pre-crossed followers of God. And I think, though they don't have a full understanding, they believe. The saying was doubtlessly hard for them. And he he looks right at them and says, what are you going to do? But their faith in Jesus held them there. Maybe you're struggling tonight. You're going through a difficult trial. How are you going to get out of it? You're just going to muscle up? Going to sweep it under the rug, deny that it's not there, or press it off? Do you want to just keep living that way? Or do you want to turn to Jesus? And surrender your life and obey him in every aspect of the scriptures. Obey him. There's no place like being next to the holy one of God. (laughs) That's where I want to be because I'm holy because he's holy. If I want to live separate than Christ, I'm going to struggle with holiness, right? If I want to live according to my own ideas, according to how I think things should go, I'm going to find myself in all kinds of trouble. Live close to the holy one? Now, by God's grace, I have a chance of living for him and bringing worship to him. Look at the last couple of verses. Verse, I've got to finish 70. 
71, Jesus answered them, Did I myself, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus reminds the twelve that he had chosen them. He made a purpose to choose them. And then think about this. This is fascinating. He purposely placed a devil in the middle of the inner circle. Son of perdition, chosen for destruction. You can't get around it. A lot of people don't like that. Man, that's not fair, what they did to Judas, what God did to Judas. I've had people come up after sermon and say, I just don't like that. I don't like what God did to Judas. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's right there in the middle of him, isn't he? Some have interpreted son of perdition, the meaning, the spirit of Satan, actively opposing Jesus in his ministry. He's right there with him. But this is God's sovereign plan to have him there. I'm going to keep you right and close and watch how I defeat you. You can put a man on the inside and you won't stop me. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So God's sovereignty is, is a sanctuary for your soul, brothers and sisters. Pull next to close to the Holy One. <laughs> let His holiness lead you. Let His word just consume you. you Want to be like Him, right? Let Him be your greatest example as you study your Bibles. If not... All hell will break loose in your life eventually. Either in this life or the next. And though there are hellish times believers go through, we have the Holy One whom we cling to. So I ask you, like Jesus asked the disciples, are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave too? Is your answer, to whom will we go? You are the Holy One of God. I hope that's your answer. Father, thank you for just a sweet time in John 6 and looking at your beautiful son. There was men, women, children right there with the Holy One of Israel. They saw all the works and the deeds that he did. They're undeniable. They're written down in history. Changed the expectancy of life of man on earth. Created food and fed thousands. Had complete control over the demonic world. He even knew who believed and didn't. He knew who was with him and who was against him. He spoke for God. He spoke the word of God. And yet, he wasn't enough for some. Jesus wasn't enough just to consume Jesus, to have him. We need it more. What about who we are? What about all our works? What, what about what's happened to me? It's just not enough, Lord. And so, Father, I pray you'd make the members of Riverbend Church, those who say Jesus is enough, I'll take him and his word and I need nothing else. 
You've given me a church to be loved in, to taught, to have fellowship with other believers, and I have Christ in His Word. Lord, make me satisfied with that. Lord, thank You for challenging us tonight. The Bible's full of people who got very close to You, Lord. They saw Your Shekinah glory. They saw Your Son. And yet, most of them all turned away and perished. Lord, we want to walk with You to the end. Till You call our name by death or rapture, by whatever way You bring us home, Lord, we want to walk right through the tape. We want to be like Paul who challenged us to finish the race and keep the fight and and keep the faith, go all the way to the end because there is a crown reserved for those who long for the appearing of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I know in this room there's some really struggling. And there are struggles to come for all of us. But Lord, let us know that we, by your grace and your sovereign grace, have consumed your Son. And may we turn from sin and live close to the Holy One of God. And may His life be reflected in ours. Lord, thank you for this time together. Bless this church, Lord. Help us to walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.